Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me, Bill Arnold here. I am so glad that I'm going to have Cal Beisner for the full hour. I don't think I've ever had Cal on for an hour. I've always had him on for 30 minutes, and it's never enough. And finally, I learned my lesson. Get him on for an hour. We're going to talk about uh, all kinds of things related to uh, uh, taking care of the earth and stewardship of it. He is the founder of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. And I got all kinds of questions for him, and I'm going to open it up for you as well. You want to send a question to let Cal uh, answer it? 877-933-2484. Again, that's a text, 877-933-2484. Let's take 60 seconds, then I'll bring on Dr. Cal Beisner. Faith Radio is so much more than just radio. We are a multimedia ministry encouraging people to connect faith to life every day through a variety of platforms. Now, you may have been driving, captivated by a Faith Radio interview, but not able to listen to it all because you had an appointment. Or maybe you had an extra busy day and you missed your favorite show. Well, thankfully, you can go back and listen to any of our programs in their entirety at MyFaithRadio.com by clicking on Podcasts. You can also download the free Faith Radio app to listen to any past programs or check out the live stream. Just search for Faith Radio in iTunes or Google Play. And for Alexa and Amazon Echo devices, just say Enable Faith Radio. Then say Play Faith Radio to listen to the live stream. Use your connected device to stay encouraged and equipped every day through Faith Radio. just joining me you're in for a great hour dr cal beisner is going to be my guest the full hour he is the founder of the cornwall alliance for the stewardship of creation one of the smartest guys i talk to cal how are you well i'm doing great bill but i have a problem let's hear it i'm i'm trying to figure out how i can handle my fly rod and the phone here at the same time because <laughs> it's just such an incredibly gorgeous day down yeah. here in memphis and the, the fishing pond out behind my house, I'm just, it's its really a temptation. I, I picked the wrong day to book you for an hour, didn't I? Oh, well, no, it's, this is a great time for it. It's, it's just beautiful. Yeah. But it's one of those wonderful days in which it's cooled down enough that I can uh, just be outside while we talk. It's yeah, no, and it is uh, almost perfect here in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. I think it's going to be... A, about 81 or so, 82, and there's low humidity and no bugs and blue sky. You cannot ask for better. You cannot ask for better. So uh, I, I'm thrilled that we're both enjoying nice days. Because you're, Are you in Memphis, did you say? Yeah, right close to it anyway. Kind so, of outside it in a, in a rural area. Yeah, because um, Memphis invented humidity, I believe. <laughs> Just about. Or it borrowed it from Miami, where I used to live. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, let's uh, let's get to business here, and then we can get you out fishing. How's that? 
<laughs> that would be great. <laughs> All right. Now, now, we started just talking about what spectacular days we're enjoying. So I, I want a couple things I want to ask you about right away, and I also want to open up to our callers to ask you questions. But uh, one of the things that, we, you know, we hear pretty frequently is, are evangelicals climate deniers? The answer is, well, they better not be, or they'll be wrong. <laughs> okay. Do you say more? Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, usually what people mean by climate denier is something like a brainless troglodyte. Okay? Okay. Uh, <laughs> and, and that's not what evangelicals are. Um, now, evangelicals do happen to be the most skeptical uh segment of the American population about claims of dangerous man-made climate change, okay? Uh, But that's a far cry from a climate denier, whatever that would be. I mean, who in the world denies climate? Right. And indeed, who in the world with any sense at all denies that climate changes? Uh, It changes from morning to evening every day. It changes through the seasons. It changes every year. And it changes uh, considerably in cycles running of anywhere from about 30 years to uh, 500 years to about 1,500 years. There are all kinds of different reasons why climate changes. And in fact, human activity almost certainly contributes to climate change, both local and global. Locally, when we build cities, we change the climate where those cities are. They they trap heat, and so there's something called the urban heat island effect. So that, for example, here where I am, I'm about uh, oh about 15 miles from downtown Memphis. I'm in a rural area surrounded by forests, uh, and uh, the temperature here is typically about five or six degrees cooler than it is in downtown Memphis. So that means that means a slightly different climate. Worldwide, we contribute to uh, a change in global average temperature in that as we add greenhouse gases, uh, of which the, the one that we add that's, that's the most important is carbon dioxide, we do make the world warmer than it otherwise would be. And I don't question that. Uh, but some people think that if you deny that that is making the world a whole lot warmer, and that that's going to bring about catastrophe, and that we need to spend trillions of dollars trying to prevent that from happening, then you're a climate denier? No. Hmm. Well stated. Now, when I, when I hear about you know, the trillions of dollars, and I heard $73 trillion get bandied around, um, and, yeah. I, and I look at this proposal that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has put out there, um, and yeah. is this... Is this Green New Deal about the climate? That's my question. Well, uh, Cortez's chief of staff made it very clear uh, in an interview a couple of months ago that, in fact, the uh, Green New Deal was never about climate. It was all about changing the economy. It was all about uh, redistribution of wealth here in the United States, all about uh, uh, adopting a more government-planned economy. Uh, And he said, really, it it was not intended from the very start to be about climate change. But, of course, climate change is the rationale by which it's being sold. Um, You know, that's interesting because what lingers in the minds of most Americans, I believe, uh, from her perspective, what she stated was not 
control of the economy as much as it was the fact that we need to do something about the climate or we're done yeah. in a dozen yeah. years. And, of course, the really crazy thing about that is that um, uh, we could, in fact, turn off the entire U.S. economy, uh, depopulate the United States completely, eliminate all of the United States' emissions of carbon dioxide. And if we did that right now and they stayed off for the rest of this century, we would uh, lower global average temperature by at most about – about uh, uh, five hundredths of a degree Celsius at the end of this century. Uh, and, of course, that means that uh, all of us would starve in the meantime. Not sure that's such a great deal. That's a, it's a staggering statistic you just gave. It's amazing, yeah. Cal. Yeah, well, it's the statistic that you get when you apply to our carbon dioxide emissions the warming that is estimated from them by the alarmists, by those who think that you get the most warming. So that means that if you remove those emissions, you get the most cooling. So that's why I said at most 500 of a degree Celsius of cooling because of doing that. Uh, and the cost, of course, would be the complete elimination of the U.S. economy. Hmm. Yeah, there's a... There's some downside to that. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, isn't the U.S. economy something in the neighborhood of about $20 trillion a year? Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. I mean, when you throw that number out of, you know, $73 trillion, and it does produce almost a little chuckle. It's like, you have to yeah, be well, kidding, that, right? Is only to do, that's only to do what AOC says that we need to do. That's uh-huh. not to get rid of the entire U.S. economy. And so the result of actually implementing everything in the Green New Deal would be an even smaller reduction in global temperature in the year 2100. You know, we can put it this way, too. Again, applying the, the warming estimates of the supporters of the Paris Climate Accord, figured out in 2015 and endorsed by most of the nations in the world in 2016, applying their estimates of how much warming we could prevent by fulfilling all the obligations of the Paris Accord, we would lower global average temperature in the year 2100 by 1,700 of a degree Celsius. That's three-tenths of a degree Fahrenheit. And the cost to do that, again, applying their estimates, this is not by critics, this is their figures, would be anywhere from $1 to $2 trillion per year. So that's 70 to $140 trillion for three-tenths of a degree Fahrenheit reduction in global average temperature. That's 23.3 to $46.6 trillion per tenth of a degree. And frankly, I don't think that it's terribly surprising that the author of the book, The Art of the Deal, thought that wasn't a very good deal. Yeah. All right. I'm going to take a little break. Dr. Cal Beisner is my, is my guest. And if you have a question about what we're chatting about, let us know what it is. 877-933-2484. That's only a text uh, line that's eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. Text only today. Uh, let us know what your question is, and we'll address it with Dr. Cal Beisner. We'll take a short break and be right back.
Welcome back to the show. I'm awfully glad to be speaking to uh, Dr. Cal Beisner today uh, from the Cornwall Alliance. You go to cornwallalliance.org. Did I say that right, Cal? Yes, indeed. Oh, good. Because I, uh, I, did, I did think uh, another great name would be Cal's Think Tank. <laughs> oh, hey, there are, there are so many more people. I know. I mean, it's... But, I'm just the national spokesman. I know. But, uh, we, have a, we have a network of almost 70 scholars, uh, roughly a third natural scientists, roughly a third economists and policy wonks, and roughly a third theologians, philosophers, ministry leaders. And I just kind of get to coordinate some of their efforts in educating the public and policymakers about biblical stewardship, economic development for the poor, and the gospel of Christ all mm-hmm. wrapped together. And do you know what percentage are fly fishermen? Ah, oh, gee, I don't. I, I should poll. I yeah, should you poll should. the group and find that out. You should. All right. One of the things I w- wanted to ask you, and I don't know if you know a lot about this, but I'm going to pop this on you, the old Mendenhall Glacier. Mm-hmm. Now, they yep. discovered recently a, uh, a forest underneath that. <laughs> uh-huh. All right. So yeah. this emerging forest it determines that the ages of the trees range from 1,200 to 2,300 years old. So mm-hmm. the glacier melts, and then underneath the glacier is a forest. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. let's talk about climate change. <laughs> well, <laughs> just, just put it in your mind that, that in the, near the end of the Ice Age, uh, or just before it, it declined, the area where you are right now was under oh, probably about a mile to two miles thick sheet of ice. Really? So there were no forests there at all. Okay. Period. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, there is indeed climate change. Yeah. All right. So when I had a, a caller, a listener say, uh, what are the stats? What, what stats do the doom and gloom people use? Are they from science? Are they from studies? Where do they come from? Well, uh, they use all sorts of stats from a wide variety of sources. Um, one of the things that they will point out, and this is perfectly legitimate, is that global average surface temperature has risen uh, since about 1850 by something in the, in the order of uh, 1 to 1.2 degrees Celsius. You can multiply those times 1.8 to get Fahrenheit figures. So about 1.8 to a little over 2 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, and that's that's a pretty reliable stat. That comes from actual, uh, you know, uh, empirical measurements. But another thing that they will do is they will quote the output of computer models of how the global climate works, and they will they will cite those as if they are statistics, as if they are uh, statistics that that uh, are evidence of something. Well, our temperature measurements are evidence. That's empirical stuff. But model output is not evidence of anything except the creativity of the people who wrote the models, who wrote the computer code for the models. Model output is actually hypothesis. And in the scientific method, we test hypotheses by creating predictions based upon them and then comparing the predictions with actual real-world observations. And the so-called data, which are not data, 
but are numbers generated by the models. The so-called data from the models uh, call for global average surface temperature to be rising uh, from, say, the late 1970s to the present at a rate of around three-tenths of a degree Celsius per decade. Um, the problem is that uh, the actual temperature measurements, the empirical evidence, show that global average temperature has been rising over that period instead by about 1.3 degrees Celsius per decade. That's a little over one-third of the rate that they, that they uh, uh, you know, get from the models. Mm -hmm. What that means is that the models are wrong and that they provide no rational basis for any uh, predictions of future temperature or any uh, policy to deal with that. Um, and then besides that, we also know that there are other things that raise and lower temperature, and that among those are changes in solar energy output from the sun, changes in solar magnetic wind output, which controls cosmic ray influx to the atmosphere, which in turn has a huge effect on the formation of clouds, which themselves act like a thermostat on the Earth, changes in ocean cycles, uh, current cycles in the ocean. All of those things affect temperature. And over the relevant period, in particular, solar energy and solar magnetic wind output changed to warm the Earth fairly rapidly from the late 70s to the late 1990s, and then pretty well flattened out. There's been little or no uh, statistically uh, significant or even detectable warming since the year 2000. And so what that means is that we know that most of the warming over that period was driven not by carbon dioxide emitted from our use of fossil fuels, but rather by natural causes. So the models that predicted three-tenths of a degree Celsius warming per decade just from carbon dioxide are more than three times the, observ the observed warming from CO2. We just don't know how much more. Mm. So interesting. I hate uh, to throw all those numbers at us, but, you know, science is all about numbers. And yeah. So those who say uh, you're a science denier if you're denying human-caused dangerous global warming, well, they need to get into the numbers a little bit. Yeah. Cal, one, science deniers. One of my uh, faithful listeners, Everyday Terry, uh, wrote this, said, there's a question for Cal. Uh, with all the failed predictions and forecasts in the past almost 100 years, based on their pseudoscience, how is the climate change global warming agenda still as strong as it is? <laughs> oh, boy, that is a, a really great question, and we could attack it from so many different directions. Yeah, Terry's really smart. It has smart. an awful lot to do with politics. It has a good deal to do with the, the psychological and social uh, aspects of the science community, of how scientists relate to each other, how scientific ideas come and go. Um, you know, one of the reasons is simply that a, a, a crisis lurking around the corner is always an excuse for government to build programs and spend money and, and uh, be looked at as our savior. Um, but if you get rid of that crisis, then government doesn't have so much of a rationale for what it's doing. So there's a whole lot of politics behind all kinds of different crisis claims. 
Uh, there was a famous book written, in fact, uh, titled something like uh, Government by Emergency, which describes how governments use alleged emergencies to justify their growth. In the scientific community, there's, there are phenomena like groupthink and sort of the echo chamber. Once an idea takes hold in the scientific community, it can take a very long time and a huge amount of evidence for that idea to be shaken. And, you know, right now, uh, we're still actually fairly early in the development of climatology as distinct from meteorology. Mm -hmm. Meteorology is the study of, of mostly of weather, local uh, phenomena over fairly short periods of time, whereas climatology is the study of global phenomena over long periods of time. Climatology or climate science is actually still a pretty young science. And so it's not terribly surprising that the paradigm that has dominated for the last, oh, 30 years or so hasn't been overturned yet. Hmm. Cal, have you detected climate or weather changes in your lifetime? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, now, I, I should qualify that answer. I have experienced some significant changes, but, of course, all of the weather that you and I experience is local. It's entirely local. Mm -hmm. we, nobody experiences global temperature, global climate. Uh, so, you know, each of us experiences only something local. But I grew up in rural upstate New York, uh, near the Pennsylvania border, about halfway between New York City and Ohio, during the early 1960s. And that was the coldest decade on record for the continental 48 United States, wow. including that area in New York. Okay. We had extremely cold <laughs> winters. We would see the ground for the last time, typically in early October, and not see it again until oh, early to mid-April. Uh, one year, in fact, we had a blizzard on Easter Day that dumped so much snow that we could climb out our second-story window directly onto the snow. <laughs> and there was still snow in the ravines from that on July 4 because the sun didn't get right straight down to it and melt it away. Yeah. There's been nothing like that in the decades since then, and that's largely because the an ocean current called the Pacific Decadal Oscillation switched from negative, which cools the world, to positive, which warms it, in the mid-1970s. And that's what set off the pretty rapid global warming from 1977 to 1998. Uh, since then, there has been no statistically significant increase in global average that's temperature. real interesting. I need to take a little break. Dr. Cal Beisner is my guest from the Cornwall Alliance. Go to cornwallalliance.org. You'll learn more about him and his brilliant staff. We have uh, time for lots of questions. Let us know what they are. They're coming in already. You can send me a text at 877-933-2484. Or if you're a little bit uh, more comfortable sending an email, bill at myfaithradio.com. Be back in a minute. Welcome back to the show. I'm talking to Dr. Cal Beisner. You can go to cornwallalliance.org um, if you want to learn more about Cal. And if you really want to learn about Cal, you can go to 
I want to go fishing after my interview with Bill.org because that's what he's going to do. So, well, <laughs> you always catch me off guard. Bill. I try to. I try to. Uh, let me, uh, I got all kinds of uh, questions coming in. So, um, let's see, I already asked that one. Um, some people say that we're probably entering a cooling period due to the slowing of solar activity. Any thoughts on that possibility? Yeah, that's quite possible. Uh, it's something that's been discussed for about the last decade, uh, mostly by solar physicists. Uh, solar cycles run, oh, generally about 8 to 14 or so years. 11 years is kind of the average. Uh, and and uh, they involve changes in the position of the solar uh, magnetic poles and so on. And as those happen, the number of sunspots changes, and more sunspots uh, correlate with more energy emitted by the sun and with more solar mag- magnetic wind. Fewer sunspots, the opposite. And as we get more energy from the sun and more uh, solar mag- magnetic wind, uh, we get warmer temperatures on the Earth, and vice versa. Well, we're now entering uh, solar cycle 25, and so far it looks like this one is going to be the quietest in terms of sunspots since probably the Maunder minimum, which was the depth of the Little Ice Age. Uh, now, we're probably not going to go down that cold because we're starting from a higher uh, higher uh, starting point, but we could see some very significant cooling, and the solar physicists uh, are, are predicting that solar cycle 26 will also be quite cool. So we could easily have anywhere from about uh, 20 to 40 years of uh, significantly cooler global temperatures. And that's important because cold is actually a much greater threat to human welfare and the welfare of plants and animals and the like than is heat. Uh, If you go back through history, you find that uh, plants and animals, including human beings, thrive better in warmer periods than in colder periods. In the Little Ice Age of the 13th and 14th centuries, uh, we we had uh, crop failures all over the Northern Hemisphere, and because of those, you had people who were malnourished and undernourished, which made them more susceptible to all sorts of diseases, and that, in fact, contributed to the decimation of nearly a third of the European population by the bubonic plague and a variety of other diseases at that time. Uh, So if we want to see high crop yields, we don't want to see a lot of cooling. We want to see warming. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Now, the point you made before the break was that we all sort of live in local weather, which is so true. Yes. Um, And then uh, recently, uh, my sister was over with her husband in France, happened to be there at the time when they were having record high temperatures. And is there anything that we can learn from that that maybe the media didn't want to tell us? Yeah, in fact, uh, Dr. Roy Spencer, who is uh, a senior fellow of the Cornwall Alliance, he's a principal research scientist in climate, uh, climatology and meteorology at the University of Alabama in Huntsville, and uh, runs with his colleague John Christie 
the global temperature monitoring system of NASA's satellites, right? So he is no mean fellow. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Spencer wrote a wonderful blog piece about that heat wave in France in which he pointed out that the cause of that heat wave was a migration of heat up from the Sahara Desert that was balanced just eastward by a migration of cold down from the Arctic. So while Western Europe was experiencing the record highs, Eastern Europe, the Urals, and into the Soviet into Russia was experiencing record lows at the same time. That's weather. That's not <laughs> even climate. That's weather, uh -huh. and it's not global, and it had absolutely nothing to do with any changes in global average temperature over a period of many years. It had everything to do with the movement of air masses between the Sahara and Western Europe and the Arctic and Eastern Europe. That is so interesting, Cal. It really so is. If people go to cornwallalliance.org and click on blog, they can uh, scroll down a bit. They'll find the headline that will make it obvious which one that is, and they can read all about it from a real expert. Yeah. Now, let's, let's chat a little bit about air pollution and water pollution. How does this all uh, figure in to climate change? Well, air and water pollution basically don't figure into uh, global climate change at okay. all, unless, of course, you include carbon dioxide as pollution, which is a bad idea because carbon dioxide is non-toxic to people and animals at, at any concentration below about 100 times what we experience right now. Uh, so in other words, it's very safe for people and animals. In fact, you and I, every time we exhale, exhale about 40,000 parts per million carbon dioxide, whereas the average concentration in the atmosphere is about 410 parts per million. So we are carbon dioxide producers. <laughs> Plants, on the other hand, thrive on carbon dioxide. The more of it there is in the air, the better they grow. And so increasing CO2 is a very good thing. And CO2 is the only uh, pollutant that we uh, emit that has uh, perhaps a measurable effect on global average temperature. But other pollutants, the criteria pollutants controlled by the EPA, uh, uh, sulfur dioxide and uh, uh, particles, uh, soot particles, things like that, or water pollutants, toxic chemicals and the like, they have no impact on global uh, climate, global average temperature. Uh, some of them have, well, are themselves the effect of industrial activity, which typically is associated with urbanization, and urbanization can warm local areas. I mentioned the urban heat island effect earlier. Uh, but there, those pollutants are not a cause of the local climate change. They're another effect of, the, of what does cause the local climate change. And the good news is that on all the different criteria pollutants for air, water, and solid waste in the United States and pretty much all the developed countries in the world, the emission rates of all of those have been sharply downward for the last 50 years and more. Uh, and uh, our water, our air in the United States are cleaner than they have been in well over a century. Wow. That's really encouraging. So when, we, when we're in the absence of good information, is it safe to say that people can scare a little bit more easily about uh, climate change? 
Oh, yes, yeah. H.L. Mencken, the, uh, <laughs> the famous journalist at the turn of the 20th century, uh, said something about uh, you know the, the whole essence of politics is um, scaring people with hobgoblins so that they will uh, you know elect you to office and trust you to spend their money. Uh, that's not the exact quote by any means, but he was right on target. Mm-hmm. Um, when uh, when we talk about carbon dioxide, of course, the big villain is what's coming out of our exhaust pipes and. Um, we're supposed to go to electric uh, cars and mass transportation. Nothing wrong with either of those. Uh, however, isn't uh, electric cars, are, isn't that a, a gigantic energy consumer? Well, you know, you, you just plug them into the uh, outlet and <laughs> there's electricity there, right? I mean, yeah. you don't need to ask where that comes from. Unless, of course, we, you know, we want to be a little bit less than totally naive. I mean, that electricity has to come from somewhere, mm-hmm. and it comes from uh, generating plants. Now, you can make electricity from wind and solar, and you don't get too much in the way of carbon dioxide emissions that way, although you do get a fair amount because you have to make the uh, materials from which wind turbines are made. You have to make the concrete in which they are uh, anchored, and that is a major uh, source of CO2 emissions. Uh, you have to, you know, you have to uh, make the solar panels and all that. And besides that, you have to move the uh, electricity from those things large distances because those, you know, wind turbines and solar panels spread over immense areas of land to produce uh, the same amount of electricity that you can get from a very small piece of land by a coal, oil, or natural gas-fired power plant. But at any rate, yeah, I mean, you got to get the electricity from somewhere. Right now, we get about uh, a little less than 2% of all electricity in the United States from wind and solar, whereas we get about 30% from coal, uh, about 40% from natural gas, uh, and a, a small percentage from uh, from petroleum, about 20% from uh, nuclear, and the remainder from hydro. Uh, but uh, what we get from the fossil fuels to you know to fuel to to run our electric cars, uh, we're still putting CO2 into the air to to run them. And the really interesting thing is that a few years ago, a uh, a university team from, I believe it was Norway, might have been Sweden, uh, did a, a cradle-to-grave life cycle assessment of a Prius versus a Hummer to figure out which one caused more uh, pollution, uh, including, in their estimate, carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. Answer? Well, it feels like a trick question, Cal, so I'm going to go with Hummer. <laughs> You got it. You got it. It shocked the uh, it shocked the investigators because they themselves started off thinking, "Oh boy, we're gonna we're gonna show how great it's gonna be to get to electric vehicles," but in fact, the Hummer uh, created less. That's that's shocking. It really is. <laughs> it is, and it's appropriate from an electric vehicle. Mm-hmm. So when we it's shocking. Oh yeah, right. So, <laughs> Cal, when we have sorry, Bill, that's all right. I, I thought it was really good. I, I normally just do the jokes on my show, um, but <laughs> when when you we have climate change and and warming trends, do they cause like more tornadoes, or is that just in our imagination? Uh, 
it is in lots of people's imagination. It isn't in the real world. Um, when I first really got into this, I mean, I had been studying it uh, lightly for about 15 years or so, um, uh, almost 20 years. But in 2005, I really started getting into it uh, in a fairly big way for the first time. And in an article, I, uh, I opined that some global warming uh, by adding greenhouse gases to the atmosphere would actually result in fewer and weaker hurricanes, not in more and stronger. Uh, the reason I gave is that according to the theory of greenhouse warming, uh, it happens mostly toward the poles, mostly in the winter, and mostly at night. It doesn't happen hardly at all toward the equator in the summer or in the daytime. The result of that is that it raises low temperatures. It doesn't raise high temperatures. And it diminishes the, temperature, the temperature difference between the poles and the equator. Well, hurricanes are an important part of the heat engine that is Earth's climate system. Earth's climate system moves heat from the equator to the poles and cold from the poles to the equator. The less difference there is in temperature between the two, the less there is for the heat engine to move, and therefore the fewer and weaker hurricanes there should be. Well, I got a bunch of criticism for that, and one day I got a phone call in my office back when I taught at Knox Theological Seminary, and the caller said, uh, Dr. Bison, you don't know me, but my name is Neil Frank. Uh, I'm a uh, PhD in meteorology. I was the longest serving director of the, the National Hurricane Center. And I thought, oh no, I have really bitten it this time. <laughs> and he went on to say, I just called to tell you, stick by your guns. You're absolutely right. Wow. <laughs> So, I mean, that's that's a bit on the theory side. Uh, on the actual measurement side, there has been no increase in the frequency and, or intensity of hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, droughts, heat waves, cold snaps, any kind of severe weather over the period of allegedly man-made global warming running from about 1960 to the present. There's been no increase in those. And in fact, in terms of hurricanes, there's been a slight decrease in what's called accumulated cyclone energy, the total energy of all the hurricanes and cyclones measured around the world in any given year. Uh, so <laughs> the, the empirical measurements seem to indicate that I was right. And that wasn't just my idea. I had learned it in reading. Uh, but uh, no, even the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in its 2012 uh, special report on, on extreme weather uh, said that there was very low confidence in any predictions of increased frequency or intensity of severe weather events because of global warming. Mm -hmm. All right, let me take a break. My friend George just texted me and said, that settles it. I'm buying a Hummer. Probably, probably a used one. He's too cheap to buy a new one. Anyway, we'll take a short break and be right back. Dr. Cal Beisner is my guest. If you have a question, let us know what it is. Send a text, 877-933-2484, or email me, Bill, at MyFaithRadio.com.
Welcome back to the show. My guest is Dr. Cal Beisner. He is the founder of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. That website is cornwallalliance.org. Cornwallalliance.org. Uh, here's a question that came in, um, and I'm curious as to your take on this, Cal. Um, this, uh, this listener says, I have a great respect for young earth creation. Uh, I have to say that there are a number of Christians who are conservative evangelicals who have convincing older earth stances. In a mil- million years, I would not have considered anything but young earth creation, but I have reasons to change my stance. What are your thoughts on that? Well, um, the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation intentionally takes no public position on that question because okay. we have very you know, theologically conservative, Bible-believing scholars who are all over the map on that question. We do take an official position that Adam and Eve were directly created by God. They are not descended from any other life form, and that uh, the the basic history of Genesis is accurate history. Uh, Jesus refers to events in Genesis as accurate history. Uh, So we have that position. But frankly, there are people who are uh, able to uh, to argue for either a young earth position or an old earth position uh, based on particular hermeneutical or interpretative principles to their own satisfaction. And so we as an organization take no position on that, and therefore I also refrain from doing so publicly because I'm always understood as, as the spokesman for the Cornwall Alliance. Yeah, I appreciate it. I don't that. want to misrepresent any of our colleagues. No, I appreciate that. Um, let's talk a little bit about some of the the warming that's gone on. And is the warming that's happened, uh, I know it's a small degree, is it hurting or helping the poor in the world? Well, mostly it's helping because, as I mentioned to you earlier, it it's happened primarily toward the poles, primarily in winter, and primarily at night. Okay. So that it raises low temperatures, it doesn't raise high temperatures. Now, cold snaps, on average, kill 10 times as many people per day as heat waves do. So the warming that we've had has resulted in fewer cold snaps and therefore fewer cold-related premature deaths. Now, that's the first part of the, the benefit of it, and it's, it's actually not the biggest part. The biggest part is that the warming has resulted in longer growing seasons and in our ability to grow agricultural crops in higher latitudes, that is, closer to the poles, and in higher altitudes, where it's also cooler than lower altitudes, typically. And so, consequently, we have been able to grow far more food and that means uh, lower food prices, and that benefits the poor more than anybody else. And then, of course, too, the carbon dioxide that has contributed something to the recent warming has its own effect on plants. They grow better in wetter and drier soils, in warmer and cooler temperatures. They resist diseases and pests better, and they make better use of soil nutrients. And they also increase their fruit-to-fiber ratio, and the result is greater agricultural crop yields, even in the same places that we farmed before. A major study on that published back in, I believe it was 2013, might have been 2012, 
used a, a wide variety of, of studies as its sources to conclude that just the addition of CO2 to the atmosphere from 1960 to 2012 had added about $3.2 trillion to the value of agricultural crops over those years. And if we project where CO2 is headed between 2012 and 2050, we could expect about another $9.8 trillion worth of agricultural yield, again, just from adding CO2 to the atmosphere. So that's a very good thing, and it certainly benefits the poor. And part of the consequence of that is that trying to fight global warming by curbing CO2 emissions actually means harming the poor by by preventing some of the decline in agricultural prices, as well as harming them by raising the cost of energy, since the the carbon dioxide emission reductions are achieved by switching from the more abundant, affordable, reliable fossil fuels to the less abundant, affordable, reliable wind and solar. Mm. That's so interesting, Cal. Uh, you know, as we're coming up on 2020, is the uh, climate going to be a significant uh, issue in the election? Well, um, if you listened to the Democratic debates, uh, the, the debates among the various Democratic candidates for president, uh, you noticed that although they all mentioned climate somewhat, none of them really made it a major part of, the, of, of their comments. Now, some of them uh, make it a very major part of their platforms, uh, but but none of them really spoke much about it. I think it's probably not going to turn out to be a major issue in the actual campaign, simply because all the polling shows that the American public puts climate change low on the list of environmental issues, and they put environmental issues low on the list of their general issues of concern. So if the public's not all that interested in it, the politicians are going to realize, uh, I don't win a campaign by focusing on this one. Mm. Cal, it's, uh, uh, every time I get you on, I, I learn so much. And what, uh, what's going on at the Cornwall Alliance right now? If, if uh, listeners are heading over there to look at the website, because uh, you, you oftentimes have uh, um, incentives to uh, donate to the Cornwall yeah. Alliance. and. You always pay us off with something nice, and I've, 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 I've given several times to the Cornwall Alliance, and I've gotten some really nice uh, books and some DVDs well, and some really good, uh, good resources. Is there anything in particular going on this summer that well, we should know about? Month, this month, for July, we are, as our way of saying, saying thank you for a gift of literally any size, okay, mm-hmm. <laughs> any size, we will send a free copy of our of my book, Prospects for Growth, A Biblical View of Population, Resources, and the Future. This book looks at the whole anti-population growth movement, at the arguments for it, against, uh, uh, at the answers to those arguments. It answers the claim that growing population is robbing the earth of its resources and poisoning the planet with pollution. It looks at arguments that uh, growing population is causing crowding and poverty and uh, all sorts of things. And it shows that the empirical evidence is exactly the opposite and explains why. Mm-hmm. It's because God made us in his image to be creative and productive as he is. This is a 270-some page book, and again, for uh, as our 
way of saying thank you for a 100% tax-deductible gift of any size, we'll send a free copy. All people need to do is go to cornwallalliance.org, click on the Donate button down near the bottom of the home page and uh, prominent on most of our other pages, and make a donation of any size and then request the book, Prospects for Growth. I got that book, just so you know, Cal. It's a great book. Wonderful. Yeah, I got, Wonderful. I, got my, I got my grubby hands on one of those. It was great. I enjoyed it very much. Good. Um, Good. One last question. Is, uh, is sea levels rising? Yes, sea levels are rising uh, at an average rate over the centuries of about one and a half millimeters per year. That figures out to, oh, seven to ten inches per century. Uh, it, it speeds up and it slows down based on a variety of different uh, uh, factors. Um, but the claims that we're going to see rapid sea level rise in response to global warming are all, I think, badly exaggerated. Even the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, if you take its forecasts mm-hmm. and apply them to where I used to live near Miami, I was 15 feet from the beach, uh, 15 miles from the beach, eight feet above sea level. Uh, I would have had beachfront property in a little over 3,600 <laughs> years. All right, Cal, go fishing. <laughs> Get your get your <laughs> fishing right. rod and get out and get some fresh air. Thank you so much for doing the show. Well, thank you, Bill, and God bless. Yeah, God bless. Dr. Cal Beisner has been my guest. CornwallAlliance.org is his website. That wraps up our show. Thanks for listening. I certainly look forward to uh, tomorrow. Can hardly wait. Have a good night's sleep. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.